Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. Our sovereign enemies are hoping that we continue down this path because they know that that's the way to perdition for the United States. And that's the way for our economy to finally buckle under its own weight. And my greatest fear is that the United States is setting itself up for um, for the fall of the dollar. And I hope that that doesn't happen. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by the famous Danielle DeMartino Booth. Welcome, Danielle. It's great to be here. I don't think I'm very famous, but it's, it's a lot of fun to be here. It's, it's been since New Hampshire, right? So exactly, exactly. How are things getting started in the new year? Uh, you know, they're getting started with kind of a bang. Uh, this, this has been, it, it feels like we're revisiting early 2018, but one month earlier, because I think the, the entire world knows that Jay Powell's going to be confirmed. But just like it was in 2018, markets are testing him. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. And that's probably a great sequitur uh, into what I want to start covering with you, with this, which is the minutes uh, that came out just yesterday. So if you'll bear with me here, I've got a couple of charts uh, to walk sure. our viewers through. All right. So I'd love to just get your, your high-level thoughts here um, on the minutes that just came out. We're recording this on January the 6th, uh, Danielle. So what we're looking at here is an updated uh, Federal Reserve, the dot plot that just came out. Um, so I guess just broadly, I'd love to uh, get your interpretation of the minutes that came out. They were broadly kind of interpreted as hawkish, uh, but I'd love to get your just high-level thoughts on everything that happened yesterday. So um, I know we're going to talk about the politics of the Fed uh, as kind of our last chapter today, but mm-hmm. but we ha- you have to have a better understanding for the fact that the changing of the guard in 2022 in terms of the voters versus 2021 puts a different slant on the dot plot. It gives the dot plot more import because coming into 2021, mm-hmm. we could have seen a really hawkish dot plot, but a lot of people could could have said, well, but the voting rotation is dovish. So those those most hawkish members, if they don't have a vote in 2021, well, you know, who cares? We're, they're going to be able to hold the dovish line. The, the situation's completely flipped in 2022. Mary Daly from the San Francisco Fed, and, you know, San Francisco and Chicago have this ongoing struggle to see who can be the most dovish of the two. <laughs> Neil Kashkari, notwithstanding, he's on a, he's like off the reservation. He's like way over where other people beyond doves live. But um, but it was interesting that she came out today and, and said, you know, in no way am I sanctioning any, any form of quantitative tightening, any, even allowing securities to run off the balance sheet. But the market was like, who cares? She's not voting. Right. So that's why I'm saying this dot plot has great import because you've had – You've got Harker coming in to replace Boston temporarily. Harker's kind of moderately to to pretty hawkish. Bullard's way out there on the hawkish spectrum. He's rotating in. You've got George rotating in. You've got um, um, Cleveland, I can't think of her name, Uh, Mester rotating in. But you have four hawks rotating in to replace doves in addition to Christopher Waller, who used to be Bullard's director of research, and as a governor, he's the first one out of the gate in 2022 to say, on March 17th, we need to be 
we need the, the, the tapering process needs to be completed and we need to be hiking interest rates on March the 17th. I mean, this is really a massive shift. And then you see politically, once Jay Powell got the renomination, that he was able to start speaking like the old Jay Powell. Mm. And because the, the politics were behind him. And I hate to make it sound that trite, but but he might have been sounding as transitory as he was, knowing full well that inflation's really taken off because he was trying to make sure that compared to Lael Brainerd, he was going to be palatable enough to the Biden administration as a Republican to get the nod. And once he did, now it's out of the administration's hands. There were 83 votes in his favor the first time that he was confirmed uh, as Fed chair. So even if that drops appreciably, uh, because of the progressives, theoretically, he's we we still know he's going to sweep in on January the 11th uh, with his confirmation hearing. So all of these dynamics make a huge difference in how to interpret the dot plot because people are absolutely determined to tighten policy and do it quickly. And this is a massive shift from where we were if we had been having the same discussion 12 months ago. Yeah. So, Danielle, what do you think is behind this kind of hawkish shift, right? Uh, because on the one hand, there's obviously the politics of the Fed and the, the changing constitution of the governors, right? But also, how much is responsible or how much is inflation uh, and this worry about the specter of inflation responsible for kind of this more hawkish tilt? Well, I think, uh, I, I think that the, the, the monetarists and the more, the more traditional central bankers were getting increasingly agitated in 2021 because it was obvious that policy was being that the, the first mandate of of minimizing price pressures of minimizing inflation it was obvious that it had been outright abandoned mm. in favor of only making policy for the inclusive minimum unemployment rate and the, the trade-off between the two showed that there was literally no more balance and I think that, that something broke in the institution in 2021 when it's pretty obvious that whoever modeled out average inflation targeting, it was just a model. When it was tested, it didn't work. And that had to do with fiscal policy and fiscal policy alone, which when, when you put money in the hands of people directly, di direct deposited, you're going to get inflation. And the irony is that since Ben Bernanke imposed the inflation target of 2%, back in 2012, the, the Fed couldn't find inflation with a roadmap. Uh, but once you add fiscal money to the, same with the Bank of Japan, you name the country, they haven't been able to hit their inflation target. But that's because this, this ingredient of giving money directly to the people who have the highest propensity to spend it was missing. Do that, you're gonna get inflation overnight and that's exactly what we've gotten. Now, what are your thoughts? Because obviously we had uh, back in 2020 and I guess through 2021, we had the PPP program. Uh, you did have an infrastructure bill that did get passed in the trillions with a T, but it wasn't the $5 trillion that was originally proposed. Right? So, so what's your expectation on how the market views the amount of fiscal spending in general right now? Is it more than they thought, less than they thought? How are people pricing in the amount of fiscal, uh, I guess, in 2022? I think there's a lot of incorrect pricing of fiscal into mm. 2022. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the fact that it is it's an election year there mm. was there was a huge shift within the democratic party after the virginia gubernatorial race and that swung 
you know, surprisingly to Republican. And so I, I don't think it's just a matter of this trio of Tester, Cinema, and Mansion off in a corner representing this rogue class of moderate Democrats. I think mm. that there are a lot more moderate Democrats, so there, it's going to be much more difficult to push through the child tax credit in cash and have that be part of a, a, a spending program. Because beyond that, if you're talking about traditional infrastructure, that's going to benefit state and municipalities. It's going to go towards bridges and tunnels that are decrepit and need repair. A lot of it's going to be through, and it, Biden actually bragged about this. I almost fell off my chair. It's like, this is going to create a lot of union jobs. And I'm like, you're saying out loud that we're going to waste taxpayer money. Mm. But but the thrust of the fiscal impulse is nothing like what it is when you're talking about when you're talking about bricks, mortar, shovels, potholes, bridges, tunnels, all that stuff. That is very slow moving stimulus. Mm. It's going to benefit and you've seen it benefit the caterpillar stocks and the the, the the other construction cement. You've seen that benefit already go through. And what it will come down to next is the, the benefit that it's going to have for certain municipalities and therefore municipal bonds. That's about as boring as you get compared to talking about giving somebody $2,500 on top of state benefits per month to not work. They're just apples and oranges. And you shouldn't, I think people shouldn't get bogged down in this, you know, there's 500 some odd billion dollars of additional spending that's going to be put into the economy over the next eight years. I mean, that's like, it's just, it's, it's a rounding error. I'd love to get your thoughts on how some of this translates into markets in general, right? So returning to, I guess, the actions of the Fed here, this is a great chart that I saw that you tweeted out just earlier today. Uh, so for folks who are listening here, I'll do my best to describe it to you. But basically what we're looking at is post-GFC uh, Fed balance sheet phases. So we're looking at QE, tapering, and tightening, essentially, and the impact that that's had on the U.S. 10-year and the S&P 500. So, Danielle, you know, what led you to tweet, uh, tweet this out? What, do you kinda, what are your kind of takeaways when you look at this chart? Well, my takeaway is, first and foremost, it's the increased sensitivity of the market, of the stock market, to bond yields. So every time the Fed tries to play this, we're going to tighten meme, it, it takes less and less for them to break the market. Mm -hmm. And that's what you see in this. If, if you're just listening, that's what you're seeing in over the phases of the original quantitative easing and then the taper. And then QT, the attempt at QT, you're seeing the 10-year the, the yield come down further and further and further, and it takes less increase in that 10-year yield for something to break in the stock market. And the most interesting divide was when Powell was trying to push through quantitative tightening at the same time as raising interest rates. And that's really the only significant downturn that we saw in the stock market outside of the COVID recession scare that lasted for all of two months. But that was the only sustained downturn that you saw in the S&P 500, which is depicted on this chart. And it was it was accompanied by an increase in the 10-year yield. But I also tweeted out this morning, uh, you know, what yield is rising more than the 10-year 10 10 yield today? And that's my cheeky way. And I sent it out with a, a, a chart of the twos, tens yield curve spread. That was my cheeky way of saying, we're still at 87 basis points uh, on the differential between the two-year and the 10-year yield, despite both going up. The two-year is going up by more than the 10-year, and the closer to inversion we get, the, the, the higher the two-year is versus the 10-year, the closer to inversion we get, that means the less latitude, the less discretion Fed has to make monetary policy. 
And there's nothing, we could talk about the dot plot for three days, but for you to say that the Fed is going to raise interest rates when the yield curve is inverted, I mean, well, it's never happened before. That means that they're actively trying to catalyze recession. Yeah. So two year moved, uh, you know, had a pretty big move right, in response to Fed minutes. Uh, this comes to us. Our, our mutual friend Jim Bianco, he tweeted this out, but the original chart comes from Double Line. So what we're looking at here is the federal funds target rate versus uh, the two year rate. Uh, so as you can see, they seem to move pretty much in lockstep with the two year leading. Um, and it looks like right after the Fed minutes yesterday, we saw a huge uh, jump right in the two year. Um, yep. So I guess what my untrained eyes, when I look at this, I kind of see the Fed fund rate being moving up, right, which I guess supports that hawkish, um, you know, projection from the Fed dot plot. What's your takeaway when you look at this chart? So shameless, shameless plug. If I look like I'm tired, it's because I just got back from Los Angeles. I'm, I, was, I had Jim to my left and Jeff Gunlack, Jeffrey Gunlack to my right. So mm. I just came back from Double Line's third annual roundtable. Oh, and Jim and I were the only two who actually participated in person. Mm. Uh, and we talked about this at length. And that is that you could, in, in Gunlack's mind, and this is his theory, and it's so simple and elegant, and it comes straight through on this chart, you could replace the Federal Reserve with a two-year treasury and call it a day. The two-year treasury would make policy. And that's exactly what we were talking about before. And that's it's because the two-year has become so relevant in a post-not-QE era, right? Because the Fed marched in in 2019, very much in need of a black swan, in need of something to put the economy into recession so that they could launch actual quantitative easing all the way out the curve. But not QE taught us that if push comes to shove, at least the Fed can try and buy the short end of the treasury curve to uninvert the yield curve. And that's when you saw the, the two-year treasury really become the powerful uh, messaging uh, metric that it has become. And it is what will break the stock market. And that's what Gunlack and Jim, and I agree with them, that's what they're saying. If the two-year yield is rising faster than that of the 10-year yield, then it's indicative of the fact that the, it, the, the difference between the two tells you exactly how much runway the Fed has to tighten. And that's it. So the two-year yield basically dictates how tight monetary policy can get. So you can talk about, oh, they're predicting three this year, three rate hikes and four rate hikes in 2023. And by the way, the bunny rabbit just you know jumped across the screen. It doesn't make a difference. The two years is going to tell you exactly how much latitude the Fed has. I, I love the way that you described it actually as, as this meme that's been happening basically. So if you look at this chart, right, the amount of green uh, and even yellow is much, much larger than the amount of red, right? So basically we've been in a much more... Um, easy area of monetary policy than, uh, let's say, less accommodative, right? Periods of tightening sure. or tapering or whatever it is. So when I look at that fundamental mechanism, right? And, uh, you know, in previous times when the Fed has tried to taper or even tighten their balance sheet, it seems like they have very little political appetite to do that. So, you know, when I'm looking forward into 2022, you know, there's a lot of uh, negative sentiment right now. Stocks have sold off. Crypto has sold off the last couple of days. I mean, how long does the Fed have in it really to tighten? You know, because that fundamental mechanism of the connection between the stock market and the real economy, that seems to still be intact to me. So I don't know. What are, you, what are your thoughts, I guess, moving forward into 2022? So I think, I think you're, you're going to have to get into the real economy if yeah. you want to talk about uh, what the effect that this is going to have. 
uh, I mean, it's easy enough to say, you know what, we, we've had this sell-off and there's, there's passive investing flows going on in the background. There's share buybacks look to have hit an all-time record in the fourth quarter. Uh, there are other sources of liquidity that are pouring into this market aside from what Lacey Hunt has taught me, and that is that there is a three times multiplier in terms of the Fed taper. If the QE is only $75 billion versus what it was $120 billion prior to December, the differential between the two, there's a three times multiplier effect in terms of how much liquidity is being felt being pulled out of the market, which means that share buybacks, passive flows, um, algorithmic trading, all of this has to act as a bigger offset than it would have otherwise. Mm. And CEOs and CFOs are extremely, they can talk a good talk, they can say whatever they want to say, but if you look at, if, again, this particular chart starts in December of 08, the period of unconventional monetary policy. If you look at the correlation, the co-movement between CEO and CFO confidence prior to December of 08, prior to the Fed incentivizing effectively share buybacks that are financed with debt for one example, then you see a much lower correlation between the stock market and CEO and CFO confidence. I bring this up because CEOs and CFOs are in charge of hiring and firing decisions. So the, the stock market, it, it wasn't the real economy prior to the launch of QE. But when people say the stock market is not the real economy and it's all over Twitter, and it's because a lot of us grew up being told that that's not true. The correlation is now 70% between CEO confidence and the S&P 500. So they're going to make decisions based on headcount, based on where their share price is. The other thing, Daniel, I'd love to get your opinion as a former Fed insider, right? Um, is this how much does this idea of the wealth effect, right, uh, which is in, in my view, the wealth effect, right, which is this correlation between asset prices and consumer spending, which is a mm -hmm. really high correlation, right? It's like 65 or 70 percent. How much does that factor into Fed policy? Because when people talk about the connection between, you know, the financial economy and the real economy, what I always kind of think in my head, and the reason why the Fed wants asset prices elevated is the more asset prices are elevated, the more people feel wealthy, the more they'll spend. Theoretically, it's yep. almost like if I inject money into the financial economy, that trickles down into the real economy via that correlation. How much does that correlation, this wealth effect, factor into Fed policy? They should rename it the wealthy effect <laughs> because the, the top quintile of, of, of earners is responsible for 50%, 42%, 43% of spending. And when you get down to discretionary spending line items, they're responsible for even more. So the wealthier the wealthy are, the more they're going to carry consumption because they're, they, they're responsible for such a disproportionate share of spending. And that is a reflection of the inequality divide. It's always been this way, but it's gotten to be much more pronounced in recent years. The whole idea of trickle down is, I, I don't know if you have any children listening, it's bullshit. It just doesn't work. It doesn't happen. It, it, it's completely false. And the reason that there's this idea right now that things aren't so bad for people on Main Street is because the lowest income earners have been given so much in the way of stimulus but if you talk to somebody in the middle of the income strata right now, they're the most miserable they've been in their entire career. Yeah. Because they're not, they're, they don't qualify for these government stimulus programs, nor did they. So they haven't been building up their savings. And you know, they're not getting, they didn't get a 25% increase on October the 1st of food stamps. 25%. This was executive ordered in by Biden. 
you're trying to obviously buy votes. But that 25% increase in the SNAP program, as it's called, made meat, poultry, eggs, dairy. It made food inflation that was globally really bad enormously worse for the United States. We've, I mean, you, you sometimes you see two or three or four percent increases in these programs. Twenty-five percent was massive, and it's percolated straight through into food prices. But the people in the middle can't afford it, and so this is just a disaster for, for kind of what we think about as mom and pops. First, they got decimated by fiscal measures that were designed to put small businesses out of business and turn us into a big box retailer full of oligopolies and gut the small business community. And then you have other safety net measures that have created inflation that's hurt the middle, those in the middle, the very most. I, I completely agree with you. It seems like the divide between you know the financial economy, the real economy, these people who didn't haven't really felt the effect of uh, the trickle down, which I, I agree with. That. I keep using uh, bunny ears here because I also don't believe that that's actually what is happening. Airports are much more polite than what I said, but yeah. <laughs> well, this is HBO. It's all right. We can say bullshit here. So I, I want to move into some of those um, real world economy impacts of, of what we're talking about. This is a great chart uh, by colleague Jack Farley actually pulled together, which is the federal funds effective rate, which you can see in red, uh, and the projected um, federal funds rate as summarized by the FOMC. As you can see, uh, near the two shall meet. Essentially, the actual federal funds rate is always less than the projections of um, what the Fed says in the FOMC. So I guess I thought this would be a fun backdrop to maybe present a bit of a devil's advocate argument that it's going to be as hawkish as it seems. But I guess to just summarize everything that we're saying so far, Danielle, what are your expectations for hikes into, I guess, 2022 and, and beyond that? If, if there is a larger explosion of, of, of activity than I'm expecting, uh, we've seen a lot of goods purchases pulled forward. Home People who own homes, their, their, their comfort level is starting to fall. Renters is falling off a cliff. Mm. So that is very sticky inflation. It is the largest line item in, in, in a household's budget. And if that type of inflation is going to offset the healing that we're already seeing, very much manifest in shipping rate, freight rates, delivery times. All of this is coming down, which is kind of validating team transitory on the supply chain side. But if you've got a much bigger offset in terms of your grocery bill and what it, what, what, what it takes to put a roof over your head, rent, that kind of inflation is going to make things very difficult for the Fed to push through three rate hikes this year. And if the economy slows, then you're going to see that two-year, 10-year differential continue to close and that's going to continue to close the window of opportunity that the Fed has to make that blue line come true, to make what they envision for rate hikes come true. If three months from now, if, if on March the 17th, the, 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 the two-year tenure differential is still as wide as it is today, they've got technically those three rate cuts, excuse me, those three rate hikes right there. Mm -hmm. All you need 75 basis points in terms of the differential between the two and the 10, because each rate hike is one quarter of a percentage point. If you've got three in the gun chamber on March the 17th, when a lot of Fed officials want to make that first rate hike, they're going to go. I just don't know where that extra source of spending is going to come from, seeing what we're seeing in essentials inflation. Yeah, I would agree with you. And this is, you know, you're actually kind of... Um you know, intuiting my next point here, which is, uh, you know, I think that the importance of housing just in general and what house prices have been doing for the last, let's say, 18 months. I know you've talked a lot about this. For folks who are not following along in the video, what we're looking at here is essentially um, 
uh, growth in U.S. home prices. Uh, and that's been actually, you know, it's been on an absolute rampage uh, since January of last year. It looks like it's cooled down, uh, I guess, starting in um, July. Uh, I guess what we're looking at actually here is January through uh, October uh, of last year. But it seems like things are starting to cool down. So I guess you, you started to get into it when we were just talking about this. But what do you see as the importance of U.S. home prices, right, both in terms of inflation, but also just in terms of, I don't know, the economy in general? What's the connection there? So, uh, again, we're going to go back to the wealthy effect mm -hmm. because wealthy Americans, they have big homes. They have second homes. They have felt like splurging more. Let's just let's just, you know, get a, a private charter jet, which injects money. I'm not trying to be obnoxious. That injects money into the economy. Mm -hmm. It employs people. Uh, and what the wealthy have been spending because their real estate, residential real estate holdings have appreciated so much in such a short period of time, contingent with, alongside with their, their stock holdings more than tripling off 09 lows. So the wealthy have felt so wealthy because of these two transmission mechanisms that they've spent a ton. And the, the, the people right below the wealthiest They've seen their home price appreciation increase dramatically, and that's why we've seen credit card spending come off of its lows in the last few months because the aspirational buyer is saying, I could sell my home tomorrow for twice what I paid for it. So I could, I've got more leeway to spend, and I've got, you know, I've got leverage in the workforce because my skills have not atrophied because I haven't dropped out of the workforce, so my paycheck's a little bit bigger too. When you start to see home prices roll over, and we have seen four consecutive months in Case-Chiller of, of dissipating growth rates at the same time that you're seeing rental inflation, what it is, this means that you're segueing. This is the inflection point from, from going to a seller's market to a buyer's market. And when you start to see price reduce signs and you're hearing about some of the hottest uh, uh, markets in the country, Phoenix, Boise, Idaho, Austin, you're hearing that the, the, the hottest home price appreciation is coming off of that high boil, then that word's going to percolate quickly through the wealthy uh, community who has been spending more than they otherwise would based on feeling wealthier. And that, I will tell you, trickle down does not work when, when the wealthy are getting wealthier, but trickle down works perfectly when the wealthy feel like they're getting less wealthy. That trickles straight down the rest of the economy. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day -day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. 
Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell him I sent you. That's a really fascinating point. I, you know, I'll flag one other thing as well. Uh, we, we don't have this chart here, but I've shown this uh, in the recent past, which is basically the relationship between median income and home prices. Uh, you know, you can look. You, there are charts on this. You can go all the way back to you know, like the 1940s and 50s. Uh, and if you look at like the period of around the 70s or so, uh, you know, there was a ratio of about uh, you know three or something like that. And if you look at what it is now, it's about six, right? So all all else being equal, it's about um, you know, it's about two times more difficult to buy a home now uh, based on the median income in the United States. And I, I think one gr- – something that might be surprising uh, to a lot of folks that are on the older side, like in their kind of 40s or 50s uh, listening in the show, uh, is what younger people think about the affordability of housing in general. Like, you know, take some time over the next week, uh, talk to your kid or, or someone that you know that's of the age bracket, like in their early 20s, and ask them how possible it is to buy and afford a home in the United States. I think the answers might shock you because very few people who are in my age bracket even view purchasing a home as something <laughs> that, that's possible for them to do. And I think that trickles down into a lot of behavior, right? Like millennials and Gen Zs, they always get kind of accused of being, um, you know, they don't, they don't want to save money. They just spend money on stupid things. But, you know, not seeing that path, like home, like buying a home, that's supposed to be your first step on your journey to financial freedom. Right, That's because right. your home is supposed to appreciate. It's supposed to be collateral that you can use, is you know, with your bank to get a loan to maybe start a small business. And suddenly, when you don't see that path, then you don't really start saving anything. You don't have a goal for yourself, and you're just like, yeah, I might as well spend you know an extra two or three dollars on avocado because I don't really have a chance to make much of a difference in my own life anyway. Does that make sense to you? That is such an enormous observation. I mean, enormous. Because if you think about the 70s and the baby boomers coming into their own and taking that first step because they could, because it was affordable, because it was natural, because it was expected and saving along the way. And then they became the yuppies. And then, you know, the credit card spending took off. And and they're the people who we have to dust off in, in Congress now who've made money all along the way. But that avenue was open and expected. It was mm-hmm. a natural part of a society. It was a societal norm at the time. And now people are like, are you kidding me? I mean, they did a recently they did a study of millennials who had purchased homes and they'd squeeze themselves into the payment. And they're like, dude, the HVAC just went out. I, you know, I'm, I'm in a really hot place with no air conditioning and they want $10,000 in cash. Yeah. I mean, and so owning a home is so much more expensive than just buying a home. And I think that you're, I think you're right. I think that, that these two generations, you know, they're speaking amongst themselves saying, even if you can afford that payment, even if you can get an FHA loan for just three and a half percent down, you know, you're going to be shackled to this thing and, and, and your quality of life is going to be decimated because you're, you're tethered to, to something you can't afford. And so you can kiss your avocado toast goodbye forever. So, but, but, but. Given that millennials and, and Gen Zers demographically are more than what baby boomers are, you're talking about long-term macroeconomic implications for the U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. One theme, and what I want to close on you with, uh, is this idea of, you know, bring it back a lot on the show to the disintegration of institutions and trust in general and why that's important and how that explains a lot of what we're seeing. You have done a lot of great work in chronicling some of, let's say, 
the, the scandals uh, that's gone on in the Federal Reserve in the last couple of years. And, you know, I love listening to these interviews that you do, uh, talking about your time back in, you know, 2008, 2009. Uh, you had Geithner uh, and your former boss kind of like wrestling, right, about uh, the Fed buying mortgage-backed securities. Yeah. Which is crazy. So, and that seems so commonplace now. So walk me through like what it was like in the, in the earlier days when you were working at the Fed and how you've seen that institution change. So, it, um, so in terms of policy, mm-hmm. in the heat of QE, the world is melting, everything's you know, collapsing, daisy chains, dominoes, all these metaphors are being used internally. And I'm like, dudes, you didn't see this coming. I was trying to tell you. Uh, but systemic risk has broken out. And, and we're talking about like, you know, DEFCON 1, worst case scenario, Armageddon, and, you know, the idea of corporate bonds comes up and they're like, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Even the most dovish people. The idea of municipal bonds comes up and they're like, well, no, that's against our charter. Mm-hmm. So crossing the Rubicon to mortgage-backed securities was enormous inside the institution, just mm-hmm. enormous. And because we, we, we ventured into credit easing. We ventured into targeting an area of the economy, housing, that would only benefit a certain percentage of Americans who could go there. And now look what you're talking about with nihilism and how much more out of reach housing is. But that discussion was had. And and at the time, you know, we said this could engender inequality in America if we choose to side with people who can afford to buy a home as opposed to U.S. Treasuries, which is the economy as a whole. So we crossed that Rubicon. So, and at the time, by the way, the old news, the, 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 old, the old measures from having class one clearance, uh, security clearance, I could have never owned an individual stock. Hell, they wanted to know in the crisis if I owned General Motors or Caterpillar or Ford Motor Corporation or any of the companies that had big financing arms that the Fed was effectively also helping through its policies was not allowed to own. So policies crossed many Rubicons here in the last post-pandemic era. The Fed does not belong in the, in, in the corporate bond market. The Fed sure as hell doesn't belong in the municipal, municipal bond market. God help us if we go the way of the Bank of Switzerland or the Bank of Japan and buy equities. The Fed doesn't belong there. And a lot of Fed officials know it. It's not part of the 1913 charter. It's not allowed. But as far as the, the, the other scandals, that was just an embarrassment because the new rules that Jay Powell announced were the old rules when I was there. And by the way, when he was there at the same time. Mm. So, and the one signing off on them was Lael Brainerd. So, so you just have to say to yourself, 2021 has been a year in which the fed, which has been accused in the past of being political, which obviously, I mean, you know, you finally got Janet Yellen to raise interest rates after Donald Trump got elected. Yes. The feds a political institution. And obviously so, but to have Randy Quarles, a, a devout Mormon, basically say, if you insist on trying to put Lael Brainerd in a position of power where she could impose negative interest rates and modern monetary theory using Fed liabilities as a weapon of mass destruction to deliver universal basic income to the economy, when you've already taken that on a test drive, starting with the CARES Act, paying people $2,500 plus unemployment benefits to not work. We've seen universal basic income in America. It failed. So you had to have a few people stand up for what was right and good at the Fed. And I applaud Randy Quarles because the first time that Lael Brainerd's name was floated, he said, you know what? She can have banking supervision and regulation. I'll step down early from my post there. And then Biden had her up to the Hill and he was like, oh, I don't think you were paying attention to me. I'm resigning early. Goodbye. 
Mm. And he wasn't doing that just because he was trying to say Jay Powell and our buddies. He was doing it because he was trying to hold the line on the institution and the integrity of the Federal Reserve System, not being effectively recruited and exploit it by the U.S. government to become another arm of the Treasury Department, which it is not supposed to be. It is supposed to be apolitical and independent, and I applaud Randy Quarles for doing what he did to ensure that that is the future. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think my, the last question that I want to end end with is, you know, one maxim that you hear get repeated a lot in the world of investing is you don't want to look at the world in the way that you want it to be. You need to look at what's actually happening. And when I look at something like MMT, there's something in my mind that I just push back on it so hard. Uh, and I think a lot of people probably feel that way. But if you look out in the world and you do a little temperature check, it is certainly gaining popularity and credibility in influential circles, right? In Washington, in the government, in the Federal Reserve. Do you view MMT as a certainty? Or do you not do you think there's a good chance we might not get it? And if so, what is the role of the Federal Reserve in a world with MMT? Well, I think it's going to come down to whether or not it's pure bluster in a midterm election year that we want to finally find our religion, you know, economic moderate people in, who are moderate and really look at entitlement spending, which is why the, the United States got downgraded when it did in 2011. And that entitlement spending has still not been addressed. So either... Either it's all bluster and there's going to be this bloodbath during the midterms. And as soon as the Republicans are back in control, they take more debt out. If we're going to go down that path where we're just going to continue to increase the debt and, uh, of the United States, then eventually we will land at the doorstep of socialism mm. because it's a path that's being accepted, not just by progressives, but being embraced by Republicans when they're in power. And that doesn't work because the more debt you take on as a country, the more at risk your currency is and the closer you get to where I used to live, which is why I'm so passionate about this subject, which is Caracas, Venezuela. So it's a very slippery slope. I lived there prior to Chavez coming on. When I was there, the idea of socialism was really taking off so that you could spread the wealth. And it all works until you run out of other people's money. And some part of me thinks that, that Xi Jinping, hoping he gets a third term unprecedented in, in the People's National Congress this fall, I, I think that our, our, our sovereign enemies are hoping that we continue down this path because they know that that's the way to perdition for the United States. And that's the way for our economy to finally buckle under its own weight is to continue saying, oh, in theory, this sounds so good. But I wish that people understood that we've already put it into practice in 2021 and it failed. Yeah. I mean, even be much before 2021, right? Look at strains of socialism. Look at populism throughout history, bread and circuses in Rome. It's very seductive, but ultimately it doesn't end up working, does it? No, it doesn't. I mean, Rome fell because of inequality. And, and that's, it's just, and that's where it started. So we, we could get on a whole different discussion about cryptocurrency and, and some lovely, happy walking into the sunset with, but, but typically speaking, just since Rome, only since Rome, we, before, I, I can't tell you what caveman politics were, but <laughs> since Rome, reserve currency status has changed from one country to another. And my, my greatest fear is that the United States is setting itself up for, um, for the fall of the dollar. And I hope that that doesn't happen. Because I do think right now that as much traction as you say is being given, and I've seen it, and I've seen this increase towards this populist idea and getting rid of student loans. This has been going on for 10, 15 years, mm -hmm. if not more. But 
there is a voice in the middle that's that is being heard right now and i think if we can get enough of those who aren't being heard to speak up that will be in a better place so that we can get the discussion away from the fringes and back to the majority voice of america danielle you've been super generous with your time i always so enjoy our conversations um where, uh, if, if people want to find out more about you or the work that you do at Quill Intelligence, where, what's the best way that they can follow you, find out more about your work? So come to quillintelligence.com. Uh, reach out. I've got a great new sales director. We've got a, you know, we've got a daily that is very much, uh, you can digest it. It's great. It's called the Daily Feather. I, I enjoy it probably more than all the rest of the institutional suite. But if you run money for a living, we've got that for you too. We've got a dedicated platform, QI Pro. There's even a private Twitter feed on it. Blah blah blah. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, what Danielle really saying? Well, I can tell you, you got to pay, and I can tell you what I'm really thinking. Um, but we've got we've got a full suite. Whether you're a beginning investor in the middle or running money for a living, so come to quillintelligence.com. If you don't follow me on that other Twitter at Demartino Booth, please do that as well. Excellent. Well, I highly recommend folks who are listening go check it out. Great information there, as you can tell from this conversation. Danielle, it is always a pleasure. We'll have to do this again soon. Likewise. Take care. Cheers.